Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, the essential selection of the week's science stories. I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. This week, we're discussing the news that an AI, an artificial intelligence, can read the minds of humans. And you know how children like to spin round and make themselves dizzy? Mm. Well, it turns out that other species of great ape like to do that as well. We'll investigate why they do this. We're also going to hear the sound of the cosmic microwave background. That's Mm. the sound of the afterglow of the Big Bang. And we have an interview with best-selling author Bonnie Garmus. We're also going to hear from environmentalist and rivers campaigner Fergal Sharkey. What other show can you hear Fergal Sharkey and the sound of the cosmic microwave background in one go? I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's how we roll. Uh, But we're going to start with an incredible story from our reporter, Michael LePage. Michael, this week you've reported on something called Brain Aware. It sounded to me at first like something a Bond villain would come up with, but then I thought it's like um, it's like a 1950s sci-fi thing, Brain Aware. Yes. So this is a group at Indiana University, and they've taken little clumps of human brain cells called brain organoids, and they've linked them to computers by growing them an array of tiny electrodes. And they've then used these brain organoids as living AIs to carry out tasks such as solving complex equations. So they're, they're using them as living AIs. Um, yeah, this is not something we had in the 1950s by any means. Um, what is the idea to use these like living brains as, you know, as a computer? Yes, is essentially the idea. I, I should say at the moment, these organoids are just a few millimetres across. So they're nowhere mm. near complete brains. I mean, they're not even close to animal brains, let alone human brains. Mm. But yes, it does conjure up this vision of data centres stuffed full of brains and jars wired up to the internet <laughs> being forced to slave away for us. Yeah. And so uh, th- this kind of early step towards that, um, they're, they're calling it brain aware. And you yeah. said it was able to s- solve complex equations? Well, the, the team at Indiana have put this paper online claiming this. Uh, but in fact, when I asked an independent expert who's used conventional AI to do the same task, he said the, the brain aware's performance wasn't that impressive. But I think to be fair, this is obviously one of the very first tests of this technology. As far as I know, there are only two teams in the world who are trying this kind of thing. So why would anyone want to do this? But, you know, as we've seen this year and recently, we've, we've got computer-based AIs like ChatGPT that are just doing some incredible stuff now. So why do we need to muck around with brain cells? They're wet, they're slow, they're plodding, you have to keep them alive. Isn't that just much harder? <laughs> You have to keep them bloody things alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very good question. The argument of the few researchers who are sort of doing this stuff, they're saying that the, the AIs that we've got, like ChatGPT, they're doing amazing things, but they're doing them by getting bigger and bigger and bigger and being trained on these ever more massive data sets. And that's expensive, and it also takes a lot of energy. So there are some some downsides. In comparison, human brains are actually really impressive. So, you know, we learn from seeing just a few examples of something, whereas 
These AIs have been trained on hundreds of thousands of examples, and our brains only use around 20 watts of power, so you know, less than a typical laptop. Hmm. So the idea, I guess, is that biological computing could actually ultimately be more efficient than computer-based AI. Yeah, that, certainly that's what a few researchers are, are claiming. And uh, yeah, I, I, I do find the idea, it's quite disturbing, hmm. this idea of using living brains. But, but when you think about it, every year we're raising billions of conscious, thinking, feeling animals just to slaughter for food. Is it really that ethically different to use living brains to carry out tasks, providing they're not at a human level? And at present, of course, these are these might be human brain organoids, but they're nothing like real brains. Mm. Uh, there's no reason to think they have feelings or consciousness at all. Well, we don't know, though, do we? Uh, well, I, I mean, all the researchers I, I spoke to uh, were absolutely convinced of this and so no. there's no, no ethical issues at the moment. That's but quite hard as a, a vegan or a vegetarian you can choose not to eat animal products but if this becomes a predominant <laughs> way of computing you can't really choose not to participate in the world informed by organoid mm. artificial intelligence yeah that's uh, that hadn't even occurred to me mm. uh but what what does worry me if i mean if this does take off and i think it's a very big if but if it does take off there's obviously going to be incentive to develop ever more complex brain organized that do get closer and closer to approaching some kind of boundaries that we shouldn't cross and so there are sort of independent researchers saying we need to kind of try and define those lines where we don't want to go now before we get to that point yeah that's what I meant about we we don't know their feelings and um, obviously I don't think they have feelings now but we do need to start thinking about it you know you said there were two groups in the world we we talked on the podcast a couple of years ago now about um the brain on a chip organoid playing pong the computer game Pong, is that the other group that are doing yes, this? Yes, yeah. so the difference at the, at the time when that group were sort of training uh, these brain cells to play the computer game Pong, they were using a flat sheet of, of brain cells in the dish and not, and not that many cells. Now that group is now also using brain organoids. So th- those are the two groups I was talking about. And they they are still they teaching these brain organoids how to play Pong. Now, that, now they're playing Grand Theft Auto. You know, they've moved on from Pong. <laughs> Um, Michael, while you're here, let, let's talk about another story you've done this week about sickle cell disease now being curable, because it's a great story. And then I saw in your in the piece a quote in it saying it's one of the greatest achievements in modern history. Wow, what a claim. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. Well, the person who said that, I should say, is a doctor in Africa who treats people with sickle cell. And so as she admitted, yeah. she is she is biased. Yeah. But, but yes, uh, this is this is from a genome editing summit that I was at last week. Uh, the highlight was a talk by a person called Victoria Gray. And she has suffered from sickle cell all her life. And a few years ago, it was getting worse and worse. She was spending longer periods in hospital. At one point, she even lost the use of her arms and legs. But then in 2019, she got the chance to become the first person ever to get a pioneering treatment based on CRISPR gene editing. Mm. And it's effectively cured her and around 30 other people since then, which means that treatment is now very likely to be approved later this year. Wow. Well, so was Victoria Gray speaking then at the summit to give her perspective as a, as a patient, someone who's had this treatment? Exactly. And her life now really has been transformed by the treatment. And she gave a really moving talk. There were definitely tears in the eyes of many people by the end. 
And she even got a Stern Innovation, which I think is the, the only one I've ever seen at a scientific <laughs> conference. Wow. Yeah. In fact, I actually showed the talk. because It's available online. I showed the talk to my family last night. Wow. But uh, there there is a big issue now of how many people will get this cure. So there, there are up to 7 million people in the world with sickle cell who, who sort of need something like this. Mm. But the trouble is these treatments are not going to be cheap. So the issue is how do we get it to the people who need it? How, how do we make it affordable? Thanks, Michael. We'll put a link to both of those stories in our show notes. Okay, now listen to this. It's the sound of the cosmic microwave background. That's the radiation in the universe that's often called the afterglow of the Big Bang. But isn't that kind of amazing? That's not just a sort of made-up noise. That's the actual transposed sound of the afterglow of the Big, of the big Bang. It's, it's kind um, of spooky. It reminds me of that most recent uh, Twin Peaks series. <laughs> yeah, God, yeah. Let's uh, send it to David Lynch. Um, so Patrick Gaydecki, uh, he's a professor of digital signal processing at the University of Manchester, sent that in. And he used a signal from the Planck satellite. And a colleague of his, Danielle George, who's a professor of radio frequency engineering, also at Manchester, she got that data. And they call the piece the Echo of Eternity which uh, I thought sounded like something from Doctor Who, but you're right, it does sound like the Twin Peaks background music. (laughs) So uh, remind us what exactly is the cosmic microwave background? Yeah, so when when the universe formed in the Big Bang, it was incredibly hot, and only after about 380,000 years did it cool down even enough for atoms to form, and that allowed photons to then travel through what was the very early universe, and this was the first light in the universe. And the Planck satellite from ESA, it mapped the pattern of that early light, that first light, and that's the cosmic microwave background. And what we've just heard is that spectrum of radiation downshifted into an audible range. We're hearing much more of this uh, sort of thing at the moment, aren't we? We had a New Scientist feature recently on using data from telescopes and transforming it into audio. Um, it's called sonification. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and here's another example from that feature, actually. This is a sound of a black hole. So what you're listening to here is the noise given off as, as matter gets sucked into the black hole and it just gets smashed up in an accretion disk around the event horizon of the black hole. So that's a black hole star system, 7,800 light years from Earth, called V404 Cygni, if you, if you need to know the address. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. And, and we'll put a link to that story in the show notes, because there are a few other examples of cosmic sonification that are definitely worth checking out too. Yeah. And thanks again to Patrick Gaydecki for sending that in, the sound of the cosmic microwave background. And he actually wrote a letter about it to New Scientist. And that was read by a rock legend, David Cross of the 70s band King Crimson, who's apparently going to incorporate that into new music, thanks to that letter in New Scientist. Come (laughs) on. Let's take a quick break to tell you about an upcoming online event. It's called Opening the Infrared Treasure Chest with the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, we talk about the James Webb Space Telescope all the time. And at this event, you'll hear from Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist 
John Mather, who's also a senior project scientist for JWST, and he'll explain how NASA and its partners built the telescope and talk about some of its first discoveries. That's on Wednesday the 17th of May. So go to newscientist.com slash JWT to sign up. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next up, we're talking about a story by reporter Carissa Wong about an artificial intelligence that can create pictures of what people are looking at based on brain scans. Yeah, and I'm going to hijack this story a bit, Penny, because um, I think it can be a sci-fi alert where we have a story that's, uh, that we're reporting that's already been predicted in science fiction. So with this story, the AI can effectively what like read people's minds. Well, yes, very technically, it's sort of getting there. But they do yeah. say kind of mind reading, as, as we would imagine it, is still quite a long way off. <laughs> OK, um, well, that's kind of reassuring or you know how far off is it very far off apparently so so first for a start with this study, the person has to be in an fMRI brain scanner, which obviously doesn't happen very often. And also that person needs to have had lots of training. And then it also only really applies if this person is looking at a picture, staring at a picture. So a very specific yeah. circumstance there. But under those conditions, this AI is pretty impressive at working out what picture the person is looking at. So again, we'll, we'll put a link to this in our show notes. It's really interesting. The person in the scanner is looking at a picture of say a teddy bear or a clock tower an aircraft and the AI manages to recreate pretty good pictures of those objects just by analyzing the person's brain activity which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Yeah that's what grabbed me about this story when I saw the pictures and thought Mm. wow that's that's what it could do and I guess it's a bit like we were talking about with Michael's story of the brainoids you know because we need to start thinking get a grip on the the ethics of this if ais can already interpret brain activity like this then you know that's got serious implications down the line and especially if then they can manipulate brain activity i think often we talk about these things as if they're inevitable but i mean perhaps we don't actually have to plug ais into our brains i'm not i'm not sure anyone's <laughs> no. considered that option perhaps perhaps we don't have to go down the route of the <laughs> matrix no. yeah maybe um Yeah, I mean, I was reading about a group at Carnegie Mellon in the US, and they're using brain imaging to decipher what a person's thinking, you know, in this case, what they're feeling, and even trying to derive their mental health status. So they give their persons in the brain scanner, and they give them words like death, or happiness, and then look at what's happening in the brain and and predict what's what the person's feeling and and their Mm. mental health in response to those sorts of things. You know, and then we had um, Sally Aidy on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, about how the US military is looking at manipulating electrical activity in the brain to improve focus and make, you know, make super soldiers. 
Yikes. The interesting thing about this new study, which is from Osaka University in Japan, is that the researchers use one of those text-to-image generators where you can type in words and describe a thing and an AI draws a picture of it for you, which is quite a lot of fun. What they've done is they've just tweaked the software for this so that it reads brainwaves instead and then draws a picture of it. Wow. So kind of sounds like they've really managed to simplify it. Mm. However, the study only actually tested this approach on four people, so very small. And uh, mind-reading AIs work better on some people than others, and it involved a lot of training both for Mm. the AIs and the people themselves. So there is quite a long way to go. I'm not surprised, though, that you're saying that there's a sci-fi link. Which one are you going to pick? Well, um, I'm going to go for Ian M. Banks. So that's with his sci-fi hat on and one of the culture novels, Accession, And there's a spaceship in there, a sentient spaceship called Grey Area that basically gets into trouble for invading people's privacy by reading their minds. As you may have heard, New Scientist is running a campaign in collaboration with our sister title, The Eye, to draw attention to the shocking state of Britain's rivers. One of the leading voices in this campaign is the environmentalist and former pop star Fergal Sharkey, and we have a video interview with him on our website. We'll post a link to that in our show notes, but here's a teaser from Fergal. As we speak, just 14% of England's rivers are in good ecological condition, and government's latest projections issued just before last Christmas is that unless there is a serious intervention by 2027, that number will have dropped to 6% we have basically been destroying every single river in the country. Okay, it's time for Life Form of the Week. And what is it, Rowan? Well, it's not one life form on its own. It's the, it's the great apes as a whole, which is even including us. But mainly this is a study about gorillas, chimps, bonobos and orangutans. And they all engage in spinning behaviour. So what do we mean by that? Twirling around like ballerinas? <laughs> Uh, we yeah exactly like right. that well maybe not in you know with leotards on but actually <laughs> spinning around and this is researchers at um, universities of Warwick and Birmingham and they found loads of video footage of those species of ape all spinning around and there's a clip of a gorilla um, hanging on a vine and just twirling around like like crazy um, and they found and analyzed you know 40 other clips of apes spinning around Yeah, so I think I've seen this kind of thing on nature documentaries, maybe. Why do they do it? Is it just for fun? Uh, Well, it might be. It might well be. Um, Mm. But they analysed what the animals were doing and found that they all spun long enough, like longer than they could kind of take it. So long enough to make them dizzy. So they deliberately made themselves dizzy, (laughs) you know. And and in the clips, the apes, you know, spin around until they lose their balance and then just start staggering about. So this is the kind of thing I kind of remember doing as a child. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, is it the same thing just out of curiosity and fun? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, kids, if you look at a kid's playground, everything there is or a lot of the things there are, are toys to make the kid lose its balance. Mm. Right. It's, you know, seesaws or, you know, what those things go roundabouts, <laughs> roundabouts um, and carousels, at fairgrounds, you know. So um, one of the researchers speculates that he says, Our desire to seek altered mental states and actively manipulate our mood and perception of reality is inherited from apes. 
I, I guess it's not that surprising to find this sort of thing in apes <laughs> as they're such close relatives. Yeah. Um, well, I guess one thing I'm interested in was were they looking at wild chimps or, or captive ones? Because that can sometimes influence findings. Yeah. No, I thought the same thing and I had a look at the paper um, and it's a mixture of both. And I think it's mainly captive because wild primate behavior is really hard to film or rare to capture that sort of stuff. And all the data is analysis of videos they've just grabbed from YouTube. Um, but they do know that some of it is wild. But what I'm, I think is interesting about this is, you know, I really like seeing non-functional behaviours in other mm. animals, like when you see wild chimps with toys that they've made for themselves and we see ritual behaviour. And I remember a story about chimps performing sort of weird dances to um, wildfires or rainstorms. Mm. And, you know, it's really interesting when you see that sort of proto-ritual behavior and one of the another thing the researchers said about this story was the apes were doing this purposefully almost as if they were dancing a known mechanism in humans that universally facilitates mood regulation social bonding and heightens the senses and is based on rotation movements and the parallel between what the apes were doing and what humans do was beyond coincidental now it's time for Culture Lab, when we meet someone involved creatively in something influenced by science. And this week, it's Bonnie Garmus, who had a huge bestseller last year with her debut novel, Lessons in Chemistry, which is just now coming out in paperback. Our culture and comment editor, Alison Flood, spoke with her. I'm here with Bonnie Garmus, whose first novel, Lessons in Chemistry, tells the story of Elizabeth Zott, a brilliant chemist in the 1960s whose all-male team make her life a misery. Forced to resign, she ends up hosting a hugely popular cooking show, Supper at Six, in which she brings her scientific knowledge to bear in the kitchen and which starts changing the lives of a country's worth of overlooked women. I personally particularly love the line she says in every episode, children, set the table, your mother needs a moment to herself. Anyway, it's been a huge bestseller and is set to become even bigger as it's about to be launched as a series on Apple TV starring Brie Larson as Elizabeth. But Bonnie, I wanted to start by asking how you developed the character of Elizabeth and if you ever thought that this no-nonsense chemist would become as popular as she has now. <laughs> I'll answer the, the second question first. Absolutely not. I never thought this would take off as it has. So I'm extremely grateful. But Elizabeth thought she was actually kind of, she'd been in a, a different novel that I'd started years and years before I started Lessons in Chemistry, but only as a tiny three sentence mention. But then one day I had an exceptionally bad day at work. I faced some, you know, kind of, well, some sexism in a meeting and a presentation that I'd given for a campaign idea was stolen by a vice president. He put his name on it and claimed to have done all the work. And when I went back to my desk after that meeting, where I tried valiantly to defend myself with no help from anyone else in the room, I went back and I was so mad and it was that day that I felt like Elizabeth Zott came zooming back to me. Like she was sitting there and she was saying, you've had a bad day. I've had a bad decade. And she was ready for me to tell her story. And why did you decide to set it in the 1960s? Was that an obvious choice to you from the start? It was. It definitely was. I did it for two reasons. The first reason was that day after that meeting, I was so infuriated. Because I thought, you know, this is a huge waste of my time. I'm a creative director. This man just walked off with all of my ideas and no one said a word. And I thought, you know, this is, this keeps going on. And I started to wonder if we'd actually move forward from the late 50s or early 60s. And we have, we definitely have, but clearly not enough. 
the other reason I said it in that time frame was because it came to me in flash. Oh, that's when my mom was a mom. And it gave me a chance to look back and see what she dealt with and how much she'd have to give up herself. Now tell us a bit more then about how you wrote the science in the book that Elizabeth is researching. So it's abiogenesis, right? And um, this theory yeah. that life arose from simplistic uh, non-life forms. Was it hard to exactly. kind of keep it accurate to the time and not get anachronistic? Exactly right. I had to work solely from a textbook from the 1950s, which I bought off of eBay. And I also worked from a children's chemical uh, experiment, Golden Encyclopedia of something like that, of children's experiments, which was so dangerous, this book that they ended up taking it off the market, you know, way back when I in the 40s or something, because I mean, my gosh, I almost blew myself up a couple times. I can imagine how many children died using this book. Um, so yeah, I had to keep it then I couldn't Google the science very well. Because of course, science marches on every day. And so you run into the problem of constantly introducing things that have not yet been discovered into the novel. So mm. yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was tough. I have to yeah, say. Yeah. I guess you could have used that to, to make uh, Elizabeth and, and Calvin, her, her colleague and partner kind of geniuses and that they. <laughs> yeah, right. Ahead of their time. Oh, yeah. I see, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So no, I had to keep it within that time frame And and it was actually great to to force myself to learn chemistry because it was not my best subject in college. But, you know, I'm so glad. And I just have a very basic understanding. And my understanding only goes up to 1962. But, um, <laughs> you know, I was just astounded to realize that, of course, chemistry rules our lives, our planets, you know, everything. And so I actually enjoyed and got a lot out of learning chemistry and it made me have complete respect for chemists the world over. Elizabeth is brilliant in so many ways, but um, she can find it hard to understand the people and the politics of what's going on around her. Why was that an important part of her character for you? She's a rationalist. You know, one thing I really admire about scientists is that they question. So often we don't question enough and we accept things like irrationality and fake news as the truth. And it's not the truth. And so I loved writing a character who was steeped in science and the scientific method and refused to believe anything unless it was backed by evidence. So she's very logical, but she's also really based on the foundations, the principles of stoicism. So she definitely has that character of courageousness, rationality, logic, self-responsibility that Marcus Aurelius wrote about for Stoics. And that's what I kind of pretty much founded her on with that scientific bent. Mm -hmm. Sure. Is she based on anybody in particular? No, she's not. Uh, nobody is in my novel, um, sh except for the dog. She is actually the role model that I needed that day. That's huh. why I wrote her. I wrote my own role model. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've mentioned the dog. Um, perhaps my favorite character in the book, 630. Who was, who was he based on then? <laughs> So 6.30 was actually based on my dog, Friday, who has since passed on. But she was a brilliant dog. She'd been badly abused when we'd gotten her, so badly abused that her previous owner was jailed for what he did to her. And she came to live with, with us. And she turned out through no, we had no, no, no intervention in this. We did not read out loud to her or teach her words. Actually, I did read out loud to her because I read everything I write out loud. Hmm. But she... She just turned out to be so smart and was very clear that she knew a lot of words from us. 
and she would study our mouths when we spoke. And then she would soon pair words with objects and then bring them to us to show us she knew exactly what we were talking about. And honestly, when we were transferred abroad, first to Switzerland and now to England, she learned German and she passed a dog test that lasted an hour in German and she got 100%. Wow. Amazing. So, I know, I know. <laughs> so 6.30 isn't that outside the bounds of possibility then? 6.30 is understanding. You know, well, not only that, there turns out to be several dogs that have learned over a thousand words. Um, one was, I think his name was Casper, and he belonged to a clinical psychologist who taught him over a thousand words and has said he could have learned a lot more, but I didn't start until he was six and then he died at 12 or something like that. But yeah, you know, it we tend to define intelligence only in terms of human intelligence, our definition. Animals have their own definition, other animals. So I've been very interested in animal intelligence. So I wanted a dog to comment on our decisions because a dog is empathetic. We can relate to a dog, but I often wonder what our dog thought of our choices. I think she was sometimes not too impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us, Bonnie. And I'm really looking forward to to the television and to the next novel. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you so much, Alison. Bye. That was Bonnie Garmus speaking with our culture and common editor, Alison Flood. And Bonnie's novel, Lessons in Chemistry, is out now in paperback and look out for the TV adaptation of the book later this year. That's all for this week. Thanks, Michael, for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. Do subscribe to our show and urge everyone you know to listen. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you again soon. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.